Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. President Trump has proposed a $1 trillion infrastructure spending plan. Under this plan, uh, the U.S. would spend about $100 billion each year. Uh, and Connor Sen, a portfolio manager uh, at, for New River Investments in Atlanta and a Bloomberg View columnist, pointed out that such incredible spending would require 570000 additional construction workers. I want to bring in Connor uh, now. Connor, I thought your column was fascinating, and it raised the question, can we find 570,000 new construction workers in this currently tight labor market? Probably not 500,000 that you'd want to hire. So you can always find people off the sidelines. I've never worked on construction before, but if you paid me enough, I suppose I could give it a shot. But <laughs> Are you preparing, it's kind for, of... a, for, preparing <laughs> for a career in construction? Exactly. So it's it's not the kind of thing that you're likely to be able to ramp up in in a you know in a sh- in the short term. Over the long term, you could get there, but it's not the kind of thing that could happen in year one or two. So companies and investors that are looking to reap the rewards of this infrastructure spending plan should perhaps wait a while to celebrate. Exactly. So if you're a company, if you're a construction firm, perhaps you could do a limited amount of uh, production at a. And that, and that way you can keep your costs in line. But if you're really trying to ramp up to get the lion's share of something like this, you probably have to pay way more um, than you get back from the government. So the reason why I found this column so interesting was because a lot of people say, you know, they question the idea of this infrastructure plan based on budget issues, that can the U.S. pay for it? Is there the ability to do it without raising taxes or increasing the deficit substantially? You're saying from a fundamental perspective, it cannot be implemented, at least not in the near term. Is this being priced in anywhere in markets that are currently bidding up the you know infrastructure and the, uh, and the industrial stocks and bonds? Well, one of the questions that investors have right now is what exactly is being priced in? Because you have you do have underlying strong economic fundamentals. You've seen, you know, about a year ago, that's when the industrial and energy cycle was bottoming out. That started to recover, and then in that sector, inventories which have been drawn down were then being built up. So you had this kind of lagged demand from just how much industrial demand had fallen, and so that is being priced into markets. And then on the policy side, we just don't know yet because it's only been a few months. What exactly are people pricing in? Is it you know, views on policy or is it just this underlying economic situation? Connor, you mentioned that uh, there is an economic cycle that we all try to pay attention to. And the last one uh, that we saw big growth for construction employment was between 2013 and 2015. You also write that we are later in this economic cycle. What takes place later? Typically, what happens sort of in the cycles is that early on after recession, you have reduced production, and there's a lot of slack uh, resources in the economy that can be put back to work. And so after the Fed cuts interest rates and there's potentially fiscal stimulus, you have conditions that are ripe for strong early cycle growth. And so we didn't see that in housing coming out of the, the huge housing bubble, but we did see that in the energy sector and just sort of a dead cat bounce in manufacturing. And so we saw that growth early on, and then sort of in the middle of the cycle, like you said, 2013, 2015, you had apartment growth. You did have some energy growth. 
And at that point, the Fed was still very easy on the monetary side. What tends to happen later in the cycle is as resource slack tends to diminish, as costs go up, the Fed starts becoming more aggressive on hiking interest rates. And that's when you tend to get into problems with overproduction and, and tighter money. So, Connor, at this point in this cycle, can we get a sort of ramp up in construction workers, especially at a time when immigration is being constrained? Yeah, exactly. So the only way to really make this work over the near term would be a big change for more immigration. And it seems like, at least on the low end for immigration, we're going the other direction. And so the question is just, I think our two choices are either more production at much higher prices or kind of constrained production at lower prices. And and neither situation is really great. So, Connor, given your role as portfolio manager at New River Investments, have you started to back away from certain securities that have gotten bid up in anticipation of this infrastructure spending plan? I mean, going back to your original point uh, where people are trying to understand what actually is uh, being priced into the market, do you think that the market has gone too far with pricing in too much that seems implausible at this point? And specifically, where are you looking? I do, because our view is that if we do get more production, it's going to be at sort of prices and profit margins that are not very compelling for companies. And so our view is that there isn't that much resource black left in the economy, especially with immigration policy being where it is. So it's just not going to be a great environment for companies and profit margins. It might be a great environment for workers and wages. And so the question is, what's the best way to take advantage of that? And so for that, maybe the answer is more real estate or kind of just discretionary consumer spending, but not kind of business fixed investment and, and things that are that potentially will suffer on the profit margin side as as interest rates go up and labor gets more expensive. So which companies do you think are overbid at this point? I think anything related to, to infrastructure in general. Um, you know, you sort of see what's happened to prices over the past year. A company like United Rentals, which is very highly levered and sort of at the bottom of the industrial cycle early last year, the stock went down to, I think, $45 a share. Today, it's at more like 100 to, $130 to $135. Yeah. I think it just one of these things where it's a combination of more optimism on policy and then sort of more momentum traders who would just look at charts and prices, see how much it's gone up, and they're trying to ride that trend. But it's it's just tough to see how this is going to work out profitably for companies over the next two or three years. Would it make more sense to build more homes rather than spend time arguing over roads, buildings, tunnels, and repairing the highways? Because that's not something you just wave a magic wand and it happens. Yeah, I think you want to try to do both. The, the issue is just it's a lot easier to sort of get the housing stuff done in a reasonable way. Infrastructure is notoriously slow with environmental review and policymakers and architects and planners. And it just there are so many different touch points and potential pain points as resources get tight. And so there's just no way to throw a lot of money at it and get good, good value um, in the short term. No value in the short term. Well, on that case, I guess uh, maybe uh, people will take some profits on uh, on those positions. J- just finally to you, to Connor, you know, we keep hearing that infrastructure spending will then lead to higher and more sustained economic growth. Is there any evidence to support that? There's there's sort of hazy long term fundamental growth. It just it's sort of like whether you have just better policy or or more a younger hard to measure given how the economic cycle is more volatile than that sort of production increase. One more thing I wanted to point out is something that other people aren't talking about is that let's say we found these 500,000 construction workers and maybe a million more support staff. What happens after 10 years? Because then you have a million and a half workers that immediately get thrown out of work. 
and you create this technical recession right away. And that's the back end of this is also problematic. Thanks very much. Connor Sen is a Bloomberg View columnist and portfolio manager for New River Investments. They're based in Atlanta. And to learn more about what he is doing with other people's money and his own, I want to bring in David Kudla. He is the founder and the chief executive of, and he's also the chief investment strategist, I beg your pardon, of Mainstay Capital Management. Helps to manage more than $2 billion of customer assets. David, thank you very much for being with us. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. You've got a lot of hats to wear there. I'm curious if you can tell me whether you're selling anything into this rally. Well, what we have been selling... Uh, going back into the fourth quarter is our interest rate sensitive bond positions. Uh, we've been largely void of interest rate sensitive bonds. That's probably the most important warning I can give to investors. Wait, hold on one second. Interest rate sensitive bonds, in other words, bonds. <laughs> I mean, I'll invest the vast majority. Well, you might have treasuries. some floating rate. Well, is it is it just treasuries? Is it at, at investment grade bonds? Are you also including in that high yield bonds, emerging markets right. debt? Um, good, good question and, and an important distinction. We've, we've still been in high-yield bonds, emerging market debt, and as Pim said, floating rate income we think is a, is a great opportunity in a rising interest rate environment. Our concern is with, yes, specifically treasuries and high-grade corporates. Those very safe investments for credit risk and default risk, but are interest rate sensitive and actually uh, you know, face negative returns looking at the time horizon since last year. You might uh, be considering over several months. And going forward, we just, we've, we've had uh, caution there and continue to have that caution with fiscal policy, tax policy, and monetary policy all pointing towards even higher rates. So, David, people have been talking about a bond market sell-off for years, and people mm-hmm. have been expecting inflation to pick up. Now the Fed is expected, uh, I believe now the the chance of a March Fed rate hike is 90% or something, uh, looking at Fed funds' future. But the yield curve is flattening. In other words, people are expecting growth to slow. What gives you confidence that growth and inflation are going to pick up enough to justify a really, truly significant bond sell-off this time around? Great question. And there have been so many people that have been forecasting the rise in rates, have been shorting bonds going back five years. The difference now is the Fed is finally raising rates. And, you know, we, we ended QE. They started raising rates a little over a year ago, raised in December. We think we'll get at least two rate hikes this year. So we know the short end of the curve is going up. We couple that with President Trump being elected, and as I spoke of the, re- the reflationary, those three things are reflationary policies for the economy, and we're seeing better economic data. So, you know, we've, we've got a, a, a reasonably, I want to use the word strong economy, an economy that's doing okay and we think is going to continue to do well, it's still expanding, and monetary, both monetary and fiscal policy pointing towards higher rates. That is a change, you know, largely from what we had over the past let's say, four years until until uh, six or seven months ago. So you're not taking any of these signals about how wonderful everything is compared to, let's say, July of 2001 or compare it to 2007. You don't buy that there's a, a little bit of uh, irrational exuberance out there? I think there's certainly a little bit. When we see the, the Dow 
uh, rise for well, the S- I tell you, the S&P 500 is up 6.5%. So if you're telling me that we are in March and it's up six and a half, more than 6.5%, yeah. what kind of risk are you taking on if you want an extra 4% for the rest of the year? That's right. There, there is a, there, there's some exuberance. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's even fair to say that maybe we're starting to approach that euphoric stage in the stock market cycle. Uh, but we don't see what we don't see. We don't see a, a recession on the horizon. Remember, a year ago, all the analysts, all the market pundits, calling, talking about recession here or around the globe, talking about deflation here around the globe. That's that's gone. We're we're now looking at inflation on the rise. We're looking at uh, st- you know growth, anemic growth, but still growth that we expect to improve at least some. And so that's good for stocks. You know, we're positive on stocks in that environment. But look, Tim and Lisa, a, a correction of, of 10 or even 15 percent, we can get that at any time. Uh, David, what have the calls been like from your clients? What are their biggest concerns at this point? Uh, the, the interesting thing is, is, you know, we have always in an environment like this, we have those clients that are excited, want to get more aggressive. Uh, we have clients who are concerned with how far the market's come and, and want to get more conservative. What's interesting is, is uh, and we were talking about this just this week, is how that tends to fall down party lines. Uh, those people that may have voted for Trump, believe in Trump, uh, what he's going to do for the economy, believe this continues and gets even better. Uh, those that have been cautious and have concerns about Trump, have only become more cautious as the market's gone higher. So it's very interesting how politics and political persuasion right. has entered into investor sentiment, individual investor sentiment. David Kudla, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, David Kudla, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Strategist of Mainstay Capital Management with about $2 billion under management. All right, we want to get smarter about one particular company right now, which is Roche Holdings. Uh, the ADRs, the American Depository Receipts, are trading higher by more than 6.5% right now. Here to tell us why is Max Neeson. He is our Gadfly columnist. He covers biotech, pharmaceuticals, and healthcare. He can be followed on Twitter at Max Neeson. Max Neeson, so tell us, what is up with this new uh, breast cancer drug and Roche Holdings? So this was a really closely watched trial for the company. The drug's called Progetta, and uh, the company was testing whether this drug added on to its existing drug, Herceptin, uh, helped more women su- uh, survive or made it less likely that their breast cancer would come back. Um, so this was a really difficult trial for them to have success in because Herceptin works really, really well already. And uh, you kind of see that reflected in the share price boost. This is a really big company to move 6% or 7%. Uh, market cap moved like $14 billion. So uh, really good news for the company. Well, so could you walk us through, first of all, what this drug, how much it helps extend people's lives or, you know, just whether it improves their quality of life, extends their life, uh, and also how much more it would cost for the patient I'm talking about. So that's always the the question um, with cancer drugs. Often you see where even really expensive cancer drugs can add only a couple months. But the really good news here is when combined with surgery and and Herceptin, um, women actually have a really good chance of, of surviving in the long run. We don't know the precise benefit that this adds on top of Herceptin, 
But um, the fact that the trial succeeded suggests that it's really significant. So it's something like already, um, you know, four out of five women see a really good result. And, and this could even add on top of that. And is this late stage uh, breast cancer or is this uh, throughout the different stages? This is uh, early stage. When you when you catch it pretty early, uh, you kind of have really good results. But I, I believe the drug is being tested in, in later stages as well. What kind of market are we talking about? Uh, it depends on who you ask, but I've I've seen a peak sales estimate of about five point five billion, and that that's really significant for Roche, which is seeing its three biggest drugs, uh, Avast, Intercept, and Rituxan, all starting to see biosimilar competition over the next few years. Those drugs are expected to sell twenty billion this year. So having something that kind of props up one of those franchises, adds uh, some more sales, is really significant for the company. Okay, biosimilar, that's generic. Basically, you're, you're going to have some of these really uh, pr- lucrative drugs become uh, eligible for generic ripoffs that can then take away profits, correct? It, it sort of lower cost margins. That's sort of the idea, right? Yeah, so it's it's slightly trickier with these drugs. It's it's like a bit more complicated of a process to get a biosimilar approved versus regular generic. So the sales drop-off is likely to be slower, but the, just the sales still are going to drop pretty significantly in the next five years. So that brings me back to the price. Do we have a sense of how much this could cost, this new drug that they uh, that they passed the test? Uh, it'll probably add some, you know, an additional maybe $10,000 to the monthly list price cost of treating a patient. Although we don't know for sure until we see the actual combo on the market. And, and the other thing that makes this an advantage is that when you have a biosolar similar competitor, Roche can offer this two drug package, perhaps at a discount. So it might also protect sales of their older drug, which is another boost for the company. Can you give me up an up-to-date version of what's going on at Valiant Pharmaceuticals uh, and what Joe Papa is up to? Because, I mean, the stock is up about three and a quarter percent today. But, I mean, this is a $14 stock that, well, it wasn't always a $14 stock. And a lot of people are feeling the pain. I mean, uh, as of a couple of days ago, it was something like an eighteen dollars stock. So yeah, exactly. It's, well, it's had a pretty rough couple of days. Well, go uh, back so, a couple. Go back just a, a year or so in March, and we're talking and you know seventy five, eighty dollars. At least yeah, that was in the eyes it's of been, investors. It's been pretty incredible. Um, what, what's happened more recently? Uh, they reported fourth quarter earnings, and and it was the same sort of kind of grim news that that we've come to be used to for Valiant. Uh, something like a five hundred million dollar loss. Um, what was or, this thing about Salix, Salix Pharmaceuticals? It was some report that was not really accurate. Yeah. So someone, uh, I think, took a look at the 10K, saw an SEC investigation related to Salix and kind of, you know, pumped out a tweet maybe. But um, this is something that the company is, is already disclosed and is close to settling. Um, they've already said some cash aside. But but I think it does highlight, you know, beyond the fact that the results were disappointing, the debt still looms in an increasingly terrifying way, that the company is the subject of beyond Salix, a fairly dizzying array of lawsuits and investigations that might into, eat into its pretty minimal uh, pile of cash. That's it. Just a monumental uh, pile of debt, monumental pile of investigations. Yeah. I mean, you know, Max Deason, love talking to you as always. He's a gadfly columnist covering biotech, pharma, and healthcare of Bloomberg News. You can find gadfly columns on the terminal at NIGadfly or on the Bloomberg website.
President Trump has pledged uh, to cut the EPA's budget, the Environmental Protection Agency's budget, by 25 percent. That is part of President Trump's overall budget for the U.S. And we're going to dig a little bit into what this might mean for specific programs within the EPA. I want to bring in Rob Barnett, Senior Energy Policy Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Rob, uh, which areas of the EPA are likely to get cut most under President Trump's proposal? Well, I would keep in mind that it's just a proposal at this point, but we certainly expect that whether the budget truly gets cut or not, which is ultimately a matter for Congress to decide, that the Environmental Protection Agency is going to do a whole lot less rulemaking under President Trump than it did under former President Barack Obama. So this includes everything from uh, greenhouse gas regulations uh, to potentially even conventional pollutant regulations. So we expect a big slowdown in terms of agency process under the leadership of Scott Pruitt, uh, whether or not we have these budget cuts or not. Rob, uh, the uh, the EPA is an $8 billion uh, a year uh, budget agency. It has 15,000 employees. Uh, who is a Scott Pruitt? Give us an idea of his backers and his background. Well, he's the former attorney general from Oklahoma, and he has had a pretty anti-EPA stance from his prior perch. He's one of these attorney generals that sued the EPA numerous times under uh, former President Barack Obama to try to block regulations. And so we see a very fundamental shift from how uh, President Barack Obama viewed the EPA uh, versus how we expect it to be viewed under President Trump and Scott Pruitt. Their goal is to really slow, put the brakes on anything related to greenhouse gases. So the first and foremost, that means they're going to try to tackle this regulation called the Clean Power Plan and actually take it off the books. Now, that process could take a few years, but instead of taking the staff for the agency and having them craft new regulations, they're probably going to use the staff to actually kind of put the brakes on put thoughts on existing regulations and try and walk them back a little bit. So it's a really different type of agency under Donald Trump. So given that, Rob, are we already starting to see a lot of departures from the EPA of longstanding members of the agency, uh, potentially even career uh, employees leaving? You know, there have there are always departures of professional staff when you have a new administration come in. You know, by and large, the rank and file of EPA uh, probably isn't going to be necessarily departing just because you've got a new administration. You know, these these career staff folks work typically through uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. The nature of their work changes, though. So uh, while we won't expect as much rulemaking related to greenhouse gases, there probably will still be enforcement of most 
standard EPA protection. So things okay. like mercury, ozone, sulfur, those things aren't going away no matter who's in the White House. And then going back to the budget, you were saying you started the conversation, Rob, saying that these are just proposals. How much political will is there in Congress to pass the budget as is with respect to the 25% cut in the EPA's budget? I think there is very little likelihood that Congress will simply take up President Trump's proposal and and pass it as it is. That's just not how Congress works. While I wouldn't expect Congress to uh, pass a budget that gives a big boost in spending to EPA, something like a 25% cut like like President Trump has proposed is very unlikely. There will be defenders of the EPA in Congress who will seek to assure that the agency isn't dismantled under President Trump. And there will probably even be some Republican members of Congress who would not want to see the agency completely undone. So very low chance of this kind of cut on this order of magnitude occurring. Uh, Rob, you also were talking about Scott Pruitt and how he was not really for the EPA before he became head of the agency. How much autonomy does he have with respect to rolling back some of the mandates that the EPA took on under President Obama, former President Obama? Well, you know, he has a shared vision with President Trump in terms of the kind of changes that they want to make to the agency. So there's no surprise uh, that Scott Pruitt and President Trump want to roll back regulations. They campaigned on that. So they're going to try to achieve it. The problem is, in some sense for them, is that there's a lot of process to doing that. Just because you became the president and just because you had a, a new head of EPA doesn't mean you get a blank check. There were very uh, strong procedural steps that Scott Pruitt's going to have to take to achieve his goals. And every step along the way, there will be legal challenges. So no matter what he hopes to achieve, he's going to essentially need confirmation of rolling back rules from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or potentially even the Supreme Court. All of these things will be heavily, heavily litigated. So nothing is – don't expect any quick wins. All right. Well, we won't, uh, but we're going to expect you to keep us up to date. Rob Barnett, Senior Energy Policy Analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.